Roger that, Houston. All systems five by five. But what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. Fascinating. Hello and welcome to episode 93 of the Nerdfest podcast. This week's nerds are Andy Chandler, Ian Mayer, Peter Johnson, John Farman, and I'm Hazel Chandler. On today's show, we have our film buff or film bluff quiz where we try and catch each other out with both true and made up movie facts. And we have another round of Answer Smash where we have our nerds try to smash an answer together from my cryptic clues. Let's start our show. So it's a warm welcome back to Mr. Ian Mayer. Hey. I haven't seen you for months. How are you doing? It is my first time live recording this podcast in uh, in many, many months. So it is great to uh, virtually see you all. Excellent. And it's a lukewarm welcome back to Mr. John Farthing, who missed last week's episodes. <laughs> Cheers. Yeah. <laughs> the first one in all of the ones we've done, isn't that right? I noticed the um, ratings were lower. The reviews were... <laughs> mediocre at best uh, yeah one of the reasons those listens are lower have you actually listened to it yet john i haven't no so <laughs> i was waiting for you to uh, catch me out and answer smash yes <laughs> yeah let's not explain the rules just <laughs> see if you can work it out i mean it's even more difficult to masturbate to when i'm not in it <sighs> but not impossible <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> We've been um, spoiled with new trailers the last couple of weeks. Oh, yeah. Mm, yeah. There's the new Edgar Wright. Last Night in Soho, yep. I kind of wish I had not watched that trailer because I think it's very spoilery. Well, you can't know that unless you know what's actually in it. Mm-hmm. We know she has some sort of weird double life, literally, and then it sort of seems to all turn kerosene in the last <laughs> third or so of the trailer. <laughs> I've been waiting for uh, Edgar Wright to go like proper horror, mm-hmm. and I don't think this is it, but it feels like it's around the corner. It feels a bit kind of a Dario Argento. Mm. Which is a good thing. Which is a very good thing. I mean, it depends. Peak Argento, yes. The terrible film he did with Adrian Brody a couple of years ago, <laughs> not so much. Anna Taylor-Joy is going to be fantastic, I'm sure. I really enjoyed her in The Queen's Gambit. Yeah. I think she's fantastic. So, yeah, looking forward. When When is that one out? Around mid to late October. Mm, Excellent. Um, We had The Matrix 4. Mm. Is that because you can't remember the title? The Matrix... um, (laughs) Resurrections. Mm. Resurrections. Yeah. Yeah. I I, want to give it a chance. Mm. I'm I'm excited. You know, they've had a decade or two to learn from the experience of doing the last two sequels. Mm. So maybe they'll get it right this time. Um, I didn't realise until recently that David Mitchell of Cloud Atlas, not of... Sure. <laughs> is the co-writer, which is exciting. I think yeah. she's a great author. Mm-hmm. I know it's just uh, Lana Wyskowski this time, but I like the Wyskowskis as filmmakers. I like them as writers. I think mm-hmm. they clearly love what they do and they clearly love fantasy. I hope it gets a bit nuts. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's something the Matrix sequels missed. You had the kind of multiple Mr. Smiths and the ghosts, but it didn't really do anything crazy. Yeah. It could have just gone insane and they didn't. And so I'm hoping mm-hmm. we get kind of mm-hmm. big unusual sci-fi and i feel like we might i think visually it looks amazing but i'm i'm really getting kind of a, a force awakens type vibe from the trailer <laughs> that i'm worried we're going to get the same story as the first one again mm. Mm. it does feel like there's a lot of callbacks to that with like the training room and it looks like the exact same roof yeah. that they were trying to jump off but i don't know 
with trailers, they're trying to remind you about what was good about the original one. So they'll always mm-hmm. emphasize those. They'll always have the lines that were pulled from the original. Same with the Ghostbusters trailer. I remain to be vindicated <laughs> with that one. We'll see <laughs> very soon. <laughs> with regard to Matrix Resurrections, if there's not one huge twist in what we understand about it, I'll be very surprised. It's going to be like a matrix within a matrix, or it's going to have some other weird connection to the mythos, or it's going to do something else in a similarly kind of Philip K. Dick kind of vibe, or I'll be disappointed if it doesn't. <laughs> or it'll cross over with Anchorman or something yeah, like that. Yeah, uh, for instance. <laughs> yeah. Why not? It just basically, Agent Smith kills his dog at the beginning, and it's all revenge. <laughs> I don't know what I felt about the trailer. Um, uh, I think the word that sums it up best is nothing um, at the end of it. I thought that. <laughs> That that could be terrible. It could be great. It could be middling. Don't know. I, I, I feel nothing, which is better than my usual reaction to action movie trailers. <laughs> Does everyone have a newfound appreciation for me for how hard it is to impress Andy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we heard you had uh, differences of opinion over Shang Chi. We did. All right. See. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't hate it. Stunning prize there. What are the most spectacular things you'll ever see on a screen and you get that reaction? It's all right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Shall we do a film bluff or film bluff quiz? Yes, let's. Who wants to go first? I mean, I can go first, but you know what to hear that. With the trepidation that John was using, I think we should vote for Ian to go first. <laughs> These three facts can be best summed up as things I have learned recently. Fighting fantasy books, very famous kind of British choose-your-own-adventure books, are inspired by a Chinese-to-English paper dictionary. The second fact is, comedian, actor and filmmaker Bill Hader's last TV show before Saturday Night Live was on Iron Chef America, a gladiatorial cooking show. And the third fact is, in the Godzilla films, Destroyer, who I don't need to tell you this, but of course premiered in the 1995 mm-hmm. classic, Godzilla vs. Destroyer. Oh, of course. Is considered queer by the Japanese fandom. In a gay sense. Yeah, absolutely. Gender queer specifically. Hmm. Do you have any questions? Paper dictionary. Do you just mean literally a dictionary? Like Mandarin or pictogram languages, their dictionaries in Western languages work in a way where you kind of like follow a root word and then it gets, I don't know this because I don't know languages, but it gets modified. And the story goes, a tutorial within this book kind of led you through the book Ah, and led you to different paragraphs depending on what you were doing. Fighting fantasy books, are they the type where it's like choose page 36 to walk into the big door or choose page 42? Absolutely. You actually go to a particular paragraph. If you want to go north, go to 182 and you follow that paragraph. The inspiration for these is from a uh, Mandarin to English dictionary. Did anybody sense. play those books without cheating? Because you'd go forward, but then you'd keep your thumb on the last page in case you didn't like where you were going forward. I always cheated, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Bill Hader of Barry and Saturday Night Live fame. Mm-hmm. Can you describe the plot of this Iron Man cooking show? The original Iron Chef is a Japanese TV show in which chefs challenge Iron Chefs. So the Iron Chefs are robots, a cadre of expert chefs and a chef from another restaurant and his team will come on and challenge a particular chef at a particular cuisine. A key ingredient is chosen and they both need to incorporate this in each dish of like a several course menu. 
So there's it's gone all over the world. There's the American version, but there's um, it started in Japan. Uh, there's an episode of Futurama where it's parodied very, um, very specifically. Mm. Yeah, this is where my knowledge of it comes from. I saw an episode where they were trying to find a knife, but all they had was 10,000 spoons. Sorry, that was Ironic Chef. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I remember why it's been so long. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what was Bill Hader's job? Do you, are you saying he was a chef? Was he a presenter? On that particular uh, show? He wasn't a chef, he wasn't a presenter, but he was on the show. Oh. So a table. So would you care to elaborate <laughs> on what he actually was doing there? Was he a spork? I can. He was the assistant editor on Iron Chef America All before right. he went directly to Saturday Night Live. Hmm. Mm. So Destroyer. Yes. Did he like kill thousands of Japanese people during a gay pride parade or something <laughs> like that? You know all this. I don't know where I'm saying. <laughs> Destroyer's a really interesting Keiju, and he's one of the uh, few mutated Keiju who wasn't mutated by radiation. He was actually mutated by the Water Destroyer, which was in the original 1954 Godzilla film. He's, they, sorry, I should say, it's considered genderqueer because of the pronouns used for Godzilla in the Japanese version. It's, it's translated in, as he in uh, English, but in the original, and this is very, very rare, Destroyer gets neutral pronouns. Hmm. So has has Destroyer kind of been actively appropriated by the like the Japanese queer community as a, as an icon? In the same way, like um, the Babadook apparently has been. <laughs> I actually know a bit about this. But the appropriation <laughs> of the Babadook, particularly like the Western gay community, is to do with essentially appropriating memes other people don't understand. It's almost deliberately to kind of throw people off a sense of something. It's a really interesting one. Lots of horror icons do get appropriated by various uh, sort of gay fandoms. Hmm. What, what do you think? They're all annoyingly plausible. Yeah. yeah. Or equally implausible. I'm going to go for the second one just because I can maybe pick a few more holes in that one. Like it might not be Bill Hader. You just kind of watch two things separately and smash them together. <laughs> I'm going to go for which thing sounds like you've made it up to sound plausible. And that's the first one, which is the paper dictionary. <laughs> okay. They're all things that I can imagine Ian reading about and learning interesting facts about. They're all kind of his, his little niches. So I, I've got no idea. I'm going to go with Bill Hayden not being on Iron Chef because I've not heard that story. So two for Iron Chef so far. I'm going to go for Iron Chef as well. Three for um, Iron Chef. The level of detail on one and three have uh, convinced me. So Bill Hader was an assistant editor on Iron Chef. Oh, damn it. He was performing with Second City uh, Los Angeles, the improv troupe. In fact, he'd been studying there and his level five graduation was a show. In his improv troupe was Nick Offerman's brother, Matt. So Nick Offerman and his partner, Megan Mullally, came to watch the show mm -hmm. and loved it and met him afterwards. And Megan went up to Bill Hader and said, would it be weird if I called Lorne Michaels about you <laughs> to get him on Saturday Night Live? Wow. And while he's editing Iron Chef, he gets a phone call like, in the edit booth and his, his boss is like telling him off. And it is Lorne Michaels' office arranging a meeting with him. He flew to New York, which they arranged. He met Lorne Michaels for one extremely cryptic meeting, which lasted like, five, ten minutes, left, and was then put on Saturday Night Live. That's brilliant. Wow. wow. You'll be able to find this on YouTube, I'm sure. I've heard it on a podcast. But he's talked about this story a lot, particularly the Lorne Michaels bit, because it is the bizarrest meeting in the world. But I can't do his voice, so I don't want to spoil it for you. 
<laughs> so, in the Godzilla films, uh, Destroyer is considered queer by the Japanese fandom. Now, I asked the author of Godzilla a critical demonology about this because I'd seen this fact in places. He says, it's not made super explicit in the film, but all the Japanese pronouns you for Destroyer in the movie are gender neutral. You can't find much reference to it in English, but he is resolute that this is absolutely how a particular section of the Japanese fandom sees Destroyer. And it does have canonical bearing because that's the only monster referred to in mutual pronouns. Wow. The one I made up is that fighting fantasy books were inspired by the Chinese to English paper dictionary. Yay. There's a lot of describing words which are made up of multiple symbols. And to find them in English, you need to go a quite a circuitous route of finding like the root word and its modifier. And this made perfect sense to me, so I made that up. Brilliant. Mm, well Excellent. Done. Well done, Pete. <laughs> that is a high standard of bluffing. John, would you care to lower it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I've got three facts about unfortunate animal-related incidents. Oh, no. Oh, John, no. In film and music. <laughs> this is inspired by potentially the most unfortunate story I heard, which is the Michael Jackson's Alligators who following Michael Jackson's death were rescued and put in a sanctuary. Unfortunately, it was Joe Exotic's sanctuary. Oh. Um, so there was these poor alligators that had perhaps two of the oddest owners in life. <laughs> we're going to have to put a trigger warning at the beginning of the podcast. We don't know what his suggestions are yet. None of them are particularly unfortunate for the animals, some of them more for the people. Okay. <laughs> Factor number one. The exciting conclusion of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where the spaceship doors open and the little aliens come down and wave, would have perhaps been less emotional had they used Steven Spielberg's original idea, which involved dressing a monkey in spandex, putting an alien head over the monkey's head, putting the monkey on roller skates and pushing it down a ramp. <laughs> They got as far as doing a test screening with this when, to nobody's surprise, the monkey refused to go down the ramp on roller skates and instead clung onto its trainer. <laughs> Do you need to continue? <laughs> Number two. Several flamingos had to be treated for heroin addiction following a <laughs> libertines gig at Flamingo Land. <laughs> Flamingo Land now has a venue where like, they do concerts once a month and the libertines perform there. People don't quite know what happened, but there was a rumour that Pete Doherty threw like a bag of heroin or something into the flamingo enclosure. <laughs> they had to treat the flamingos by feeding them liquidised fish soup, getting them to lie down and stroke their beaks until they calmed down, which took up to a week. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Do you need to continue? <laughs> I can say that after all, the man. And finally, the BBFC made a cut to the film The Abyss because of a sequence in which a rat is dipped in liquid oxygen and is pulled out and can still breathe. And they were with the rat had come to harm. So James Cameron went to a great lengths to show that, in fact, this scene was done for real, that liquid oxygen is a real thing and the rat come to absolutely no harm whatsoever. Uh, so the scene has now been reinstated for DVD and Blu-ray. So, oddly enough, the rat is the only thing that was treated well on the set of The Abyss. <laughs> given yeah. the six months of absolute torture all the other actors yeah. went through. In that he was only waterboarded. Yes. <laughs> the rat was drowned within an inch of its life, but got off better than Ed Harris. Yeah. Oh, God. Okay, I'm sure that one is true. Yeah. Yes, I, I, I believe that is true as well. 
I've forgotten what the first one was, but all I can think of is the flamingos on heroin, which is clearly made up. <laughs> <laughs> the first one was Steven Spielberg dressing a monkey in spandex. Oh, God, yeah. And pushing I down a ramp on roll skates. I also think I vaguely remember something stupid like that. I can't remember if it's a joke or if it's true. That's the only problem. Well, if it's made up, then cocaine flamingos has to be true. And I just can't mm. live in a world where that is true. <laughs> that does sound like something John would make up as well. It though. does, doesn't it? And Pete Doherty is as terrible a human being as he is a musician, so he might do something <laughs> like that. <laughs> it depends what we think is most likely, that Steven Spielberg pushes a monkey down a ramp on roller skate, <laughs> or Pete Doherty feeds heroin to flamingos. And just based on those <laughs> these pieces of animal cruelty... I think I'm going to go <laughs> libertine heroin flamingos. Yes, me too. I'm going to go for uh, Spielberg's roller spandex monkey. I'm also going for the pink punk flamingos. <laughs> um, three of you correct. Oh, for fuck's sake. The Pete Doherty <laughs> flamingo heroin story is entirely made up. <laughs> oh, Steven Spielberg. Yeah. It's weird because they actually found the monkey at a skating rink. <laughs> Um, and that monkey went on to be Torval. <laughs> it's not just Pete Doherty who's on the drugs, is it, John? <laughs> okay. He wants to follow that. I have three facts about titles for movies. Mm-hmm. Often it takes a little while for a movie to hit the right title for marketing it. So they sometimes have different ideas when they're still in development. Number one. Die Hard took its title from a different movie script written by Shane Black. Number two, Ian Fleming's first Bond novel, Casino Royale, was released in the US with a different title. You asked for it. (laughs) And number three, the script for 2008 movie Hancock, which stars Will Smith as an alcoholic superhero, was originally called Washed Up, with a tagline, up, up and away. (laughs) Hmm. What was the Die Hard original title again? Die Hard was based on a 1979 novel called Nothing Lasts Forever which we've covered before in the podcast, Mm. where it had to be offered to Frank Sinatra because it was a sequel to a previous novel. The bluff is that it actually got the name Die Hard from a different script that was written by Shane Black. I'm going to say Hancock is the bluff because I know Hancock originally had a different title, but it wasn't that. So Hancock is the Will Smith superhero film, which sort of tanked at the box office, but it's him playing a bit of a crappy superhero. That's right. Yeah, he's alcoholic. He lives in a trailer. It was written by Vince Gilligan before he did Breaking Bad. Yeah, I mean, the original script was a lot darker and was a famous kind of script doing the rounds in Hollywood for a while. And I knew it at that point. I remember it being called Tonight He Comes. Being obviously a play on the word come and thinking that's never going to last until like a major studio release and it didn't, it got changed. So whether it was called Up, Up and Away at some point in between. Well, it was called uh, Washed, Washed up. up. The tagline they were going to attach to it then was Up and Up and Away, which is a famous Superman phrase. Mm. And the fact that Hancock famously had a different title makes me think that might be a bluff. I love it where you say famously for anything you happen to know. <laughs> <laughs> the Die Hard one sounds a little bit like Blade Runner. Which took its title from a different book, didn't it? Yeah, they, they bought the rights to a William Burroughs book just to use the title Blade Runner. I might have heard that story somewhere before. And obviously, as you say, it originally wasn't Die Hard. And Shane Black had been in Predator. 
mm-hmm. for John McTiernan, who directed Die Hard. And he tried to convince me yeah, now. Yeah, he is. He's true. And Bruce Willis <laughs> ended up in the movie when it finally got made, the Shane Black script. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you might have shot your load here, Peter. I think you're uh, trying to yeah. <laughs> convince us. Do you want to know what that script was? I'm watching John. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so what script was that, Peter? So it actually got made as The Last Boy Scout. Oh. So The Last Boy Scout was originally called Die Hard. Maybe. <laughs> I'm confused. Oh, maybe that's bollocks. <laughs> so we've cleared that one up. Mm. Um, okay. <laughs> number two was Casino Royale was originally called You Asked For It. Yes. Why was it called You Asked For It? Well, according to CommanderBond.net, it was because they thought Americans wouldn't understand the word Royale. Oh. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But this, this was just after it was first released. Uh, it was a softback edition in 1955. And basically, they just tried to pick a title that was a bit more pulpy and trashy. Fleming had different ideas. He suggested The Double O Agent and The Deadly Gamble. I mean, that's a better title than you asked for it. Next time it was released, it had gone back to Casino Royale. I mean, Exciting Spy Thriller would have been a better title than you asked for it. Yeah. Mm. I'm going to go for that Bond one being The Bluff. And my reasoning is Casino Royale was the first screen Bond adaptation on American TV in a play for today, which just concentrated on the gambling sequence. And they actually transposed Bond from being a British agent to an American one called Jimmy Bond. I've read about that and I've read about the fact they were serialized in Playboy, which is what got Bond famous in America. But I've never heard of that alternate title. It's a weird gap. I can buy all of them, actually. I think they're all very good bluffs. Hancock, I can imagine it having a different title, and it's such an ambiguous title. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was something a little bit different. And the buying a script to put a new title on, we've heard that before. And why not, Shane Black? I, 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 your embellishments do make it a little fishy, but I'm uh, happy to go with the Bond one. I think I'm going to go with Hancock, just because of the tagline you put on the end. When you first said it, you smiled. And it's like, yeah, I've thought of something which is a connection to Superman. And then you've added it on. So I just think, I think you've made washed up, up. I'm going to side with Mrs. Chandler on this and say that it is Hancock is the bluff. I'm going to side with Mr. Mayor on this and uh, go with uh, Mr. Bond. Okay. Two of you are right. I'm not going to tell you which two. No. <laughs> Tune in next week. Okay. <laughs> Die Hard did get its title from that movie script. Joel Silva asked if they could have it. The Bond novel was retitled for the American market. Wow. And it's a very trashy, pulpy cover with some woman with half clothes on, and it's not the right thing for that novel at all. No. It quite quickly got replaced <laughs> and reverted to the original one. Hancock was originally, as Joel says, called Tonight He Comes. <laughs> which is a terrible title and probably refers to a famous scene where he's having sex with a woman, pulls out the last minute and his sperm shoots holes in the trailer that he's in uh, <laughs> through the roof. That was a deleted scene. <laughs> and if they deleted more of Hancock, it would have been a better film. <laughs> is that connected to why they decided to call him John Hancock? No, I don't think so. Well, it was John Hancock, just it's like John Doe. It's uh, like okay. a sort of standard stand in for someone's real name. I have some weirdly pertinent information to that deleted scene. Excellent. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> which is, there is a famous essay, which I believe is by comic writer Peter David, about the impossibility of Superman having sex for exactly the reason 
that mm-hmm. is described. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's called Man of Steel, Woman of Kleenex. And <laughs> yeah. Gosh. It goes into far too much detail <laughs> about the uh, realities of alien sperm being on planet Earth. It's talked about in one of the um, Kevin Smith films, isn't it? Yeah. Where it suggested that he would blow his load right through her and the only way Superman could have sex with Lois Lane would be to wear a kryptonite condom, which would kill him. <laughs> uh, on, on that note, shall I go next? Yeah, yes, please. Maybe it's better. <laughs> okay. My buff or bluff is all about cinematic first. I'm going to describe the first instances of something big that has happened in cinema, and you guys just need to guess which one that I have totally made up. So, number one. The first film to show full frontal nudity was the film Hypocrites in 1915. Hypocrites was directed by Lois Webber and it was full frontal female nudity. The film was about the hypocrisy of organised religion. Hmm. Number two. The first 3D film was The Power of Love in 1922. 3D films are almost 100 years old. The Power of Love required audiences to wear red and green anaglyph 3D glasses, and the plot involved a father struggling with money, effectively selling his daughter Maria to a wealthy man, only for her to fall in love with a stranger whom her father tries to shoot, only to wound Maria instead. (laughs) Unfortunately, the film is now lost. And number three. Although books about time travel dated back to the early 18th century, the first time that the concept of time travel was used in a film wasn't until 1931, in a film called The Meddler. It's an adaptation of a Lewis Carroll novel from 1889 and involves a watch as a time-travelling device. The central character, Raven Tenterben, visits famous American historical events such as the killing of Abraham Lincoln, the 1815 Battle of New Orleans, and the Haymarket Riot of 1886. But whilst his efforts were sometimes successful, his meddling caused problems elsewhere. So Mm. which one of those is completely made up? The meddler sounds very like a Batman villain, doesn't he? (laughs) Yeah. He comes across and fiddles with things. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like people watching the 1915 film. (laughs) (laughs) The Power of Love, this 3D film, Mm-hmm. Did at any point someone like drop a box of oranges down the stairs or like wave a flag at the camera? You know, like these kind of 3D, uh, 3D film classics. <laughs> it seems like an unusual use for the technology. I personally haven't seen it because it is lost. I don't know if there was any kind of trickery li- like that. But um, I, yeah, I do know that it was the first ever 3D film and you required glasses to see it. So I have a theory. Okay. Which is to do with the ones Hale's making up. Either... She had a plan to do ones vaguely linked to Back to the Future as a set of bluffs and couldn't think of a third one. Okay. Or... Oh, with the power of love, yeah. One of time travel <laughs> or the power of love is the made-up one, and she's, without realising it, that's where she came up with the title or the idea for the other one. Mm. Mm. But you know that Hypocrites is true because of your encyclopedic knowledge of uh, cinema nudity. Strangely, no, I don't, but I'm sure John does. Is it surprisingly difficult to masturbate? <laughs> I mean, it was hand-cranked back in the day, wasn't it? The <laughs> Love will find a way. I would expect to have known, but it doesn't ring a bell. No, I mean, I'm aware of like very, very early 
kind of peep show type things, which oh, were yeah. more uh-huh. erotic. And they were around that time. I've never heard of that film. Well, it doesn't sound like a film that was sold on female nudity. What do you know on early 3D, John? It's about the right time. But I mean, it had its heydays more 50s for analglyphic 3D. Yeah, but there was a lot of experimentation very early on. So it feels about the right time. But I would imagine the first 3D films would be novelty films and short films. I do have some extra information about that, actually, um, Mm novelty-wise. So The Power of Love gave the audience the option of viewing one of two different endings to the film. You could look through the red and the green lens of the spectacles, depending on whether the film wanted a happy or a tragic ending. Mm. That's fun. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put forward a guess. Nudity in film, yeah. Like, you know, as, almost as soon as people were making films, there must have been nudity in films. So I'm very happy with that, the earliness of it. And I like <laughs> the detail. The power of love. I can imagine that. I, I know the technology was there. And I know a lot of what we consider black and white films were not black and white. They were like film, filmed with, you know, a color and white, essentially. And so that technology makes perfect sense. Things like um, stereoscopic photographs were well known to exist. So that leaves us with the medal of the time travel piece. Mm. And I'm only going for that because... It feels completely plausible and I've never heard of it before. That's not to say <laughs> I have particular knowledge about this stuff, but I do like time travel stuff. And I have like tracked the origin of, you know, like the repeated day drama and where that comes from, like the, the early stories mm-hmm. of it. And I'm just surprised I haven't run into it. I'm very happy to be wrong, but that is my guess. Did you say 1931 for the meddler? Yeah. That feels too late to me. I can't believe that there's not silent movies involving time travel. Because H.G. Wells was around. And- yeah, it, it was popularised in every single media apart from film. Um, and that was just the, um, the, 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 I guess, the first time where they thought they could use technology um, to do a convincing portrayal of time travel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's bollocks. <clears throat> yeah, I, I was also watching Hazel's face while she said that. And I could tell she was making it up. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm going for that one now. I was going to go for the second one because I thought The Power of Love was implausible as a title. Mm. Oh, but hang on. The, the thing about looking through one eye or the other, was that not 13 Ghosts, the William Castle film, where you had the red-green glasses and you put them on and you could only see the ghosts if you had the glasses on? Oh, uh, yeah. There was something like that, yeah. Uh-huh. It wasn't 3D. Yeah. You could have stolen the idea. As I say, unless someone's dropping a box of oranges down the stairs, it's not a 3D film. Unless <laughs> 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 there's an eye on a harpoon kind of coming towards the camera in the greatest 3D film of all time, Friday the 13th, part three, which is just ludicrous. They just stop the scene to have a guy just do a yo-yo towards the camera for about 30 seconds. If you watch it, not in 3D, because when I was a kid for a long time, I didn't know it was a 3D film. It just looks like it's directed by an insane <laughs> five-year-old. <laughs> but yeah, I'm going to go for the meddler also okay. in yeah. the bluff. Same here. You said 1915 for Hypocrites, didn't you? Yep. I think there was an adaptation of Dante's Inferno, uh, an Italian one just called L'Inferno, in 1911, and I reckon that might have had nudity in it. So on that basis, I'm going to go for Hypocrites as being the big old bluff. That's a random old piece of knowledge to have in your noggin there, Andy. <laughs> I tried watching it once, but didn't really get into it, but I found it interesting. What you put off by the tits? Because <laughs> that way we'll do it. He's not even dignifying that with a response. <laughs> no. You weren't put off, no. Okay. <laughs> and Ian, you're going for the meddler. I am going for the meddler, yes. Well, I can tell you that someone's right 
in fact, some people are right. Ooh. Mm. So, Hypocrites, yes, that is the first film to feature full frontal nudity. So maybe it was just tits in uh, Dante's Inferno, <laughs> not... <laughs> Not the whole shebang. Um, I've never heard it called that before. (laughs) That was the uh, tagline for hypocrites, the whole shebang. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently the film incited riots in New York City. Um, The article I was reading didn't go into why, but I assume it's because of its take on organised religion and not the full full female nudity. The Power of Love, that is the first uh, 3D film. And uh, although it is lost... Apparently, there is a 2D version available that you can see still. But yeah, it, it, it did require people to use 3D glasses to be able to see it. And yes, the bluff is The Meddler. Completely made that up. Uh, the first time travel film actually came about 10 years earlier. So, John, your gut telling you that it was a bit too late was bang on. Um, that film is called A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Mark Twain. Ooh. Yeah, one of the earliest Mark Twain adaptations. So... That features the main character being transported in time and space to England during the reign of King Arthur from 1921. Hmm. Did you deliberately pick the pocket watch thing and Lewis Carroll for the like the white rabbit with the pocket watch in Alice Wonderland? There was a novel from Lewis Carroll which featured a time traveling watch, but that isn't the plot of the um, history meddling that I chose. I just picked some uh, random American events where I thought you might want to change the outcome of them. 2016. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Andy, would you like to bluff us? I'll do my very best. Um, mine is about sound effects in film and how they were made, uh, oh. which is something that has been covered before on this podcast, but we're 93 episodes in. so <laughs> <laughs> Right, so number one is uh, The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. The sound of the Urukai army the chanting that they did as they are heading towards Helm's Deep was uh, recorded at a cricket match in New Zealand. Number two is Jurassic Park, and it's uh, the sound. One of the sounds of the T Rex was uh, a Jack Russell Terrier called Buster. And number three is Avengers Assemble. Thor striking Captain America's shield with Mjolnir was uh, a recording of uh, the chime of a grandfather clock. Hmm. For the cricket match, is it a case of they said to everyone what sort of noise they want them to make, or is it just a noise they happened to make that was usable? Peter Jackson went out on the field during the innings break with microphone equipment, and they had big screens on which he put the words and taught the 25,000 spectators um, (laughs) the black language of Mordor and got them to chant along and just recording them stuck in the film. I think I've seen behind-the-scenes footage of that. I, I couldn't remember if it was a cricket match, but I've seen Peter Jackson with a megaphone to a, a massive crowded stadium getting them to chant. So I think that one's true. By the time the innings change in cricket, though, most of the audience are quite drunk, aren't they, from my experience? <laughs> or asleep. This was in Wellington. Um, Kiwis are generally... Mm slightly better behaved than us. I know Sylvester Stallone turned up at halftime at a football match to record some crowd chant noises for the Creed film. I think I've heard that. I'm, I'm sure I've since, seen yeah. Pete Jackson with a megaphone at a stadium. Uh, what was the dog type for the T-Rex noise? A Jack Russell Terrier. Tell me more about this dog. What previous roles? <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, his, his name was Buster, um, and it's, it's specifically uh, the T-Rex attacking and killing a Gallimimus. So this is the scene where a herd of dinosaurs are running across an open field, um, and then they change direction. Oh no, birds only do that when there's a predator, and then the T-Rex attacks them and uh, gets one kind of gets in its teeth and shakes it around a bit. And during that, there's the sound of uh, a Jack Russell Terrier attacking a rope toy. Arr, that kind of is, thing. Is it kind of slowed down <laughs> or manipulated? Or is it used as is? It's probably made louder. Yes, one of those options. <laughs> I say my, my dog is half Jack Russell Terrier and makes that noise quite a lot. Sounds like the sort of noise that my dog would make if I tried to do anything to stop causing her pleasure, <laughs> such as taking a toy away. <laughs> and it sounds exactly like a T-Rex, I think you'll agree. And the sound of um, Molyneux hitting um, Captain America's shield, I can... The word is not visualized. I can I can hear it when you say it, and that does certainly resemble Dong. a big mm. old grandfather clock. They were having trouble getting the sound right, making it feel like a big epic moment. It was actually Chris Evans um, himself had a suggestion, and it's a grandfather clock owned by his mother, Lisa. They recorded the chime, and then they've added reverb and boosted the bass and such on it. But uh, it's uh, specifically the grandfather clock of Chris Evans' mother. She did not receive a credit. <laughs> Hmm. Why would Chris Evans be involved in the process of that? Because that's how we put on months after he had anything to do with the film. So he's interested in it. Maybe he was doing ADR. said, you know what, this needs my <laughs> grandmother's <laughs> clock. Yeah. I don't know, because grandfather's clocks go like, bong. Yeah. And yeah. a sword goes, clink. <laughs> clink, bong. Entirely different noises. Oh, it's a hammer, is it? Yeah, it's a hammer. It's that reverberating sort of sound that a grandfather clock does do, I think. I yeah. Are you, are you genuinely stumped me here? <laughs> I'm I'm gonna go for the dog just because the other two are the most plausible for me. It's a process of elimination rather than something that I can pick holes in. Uh, just to be different, I'll go for the shield. I'm also gonna go for the shield just to be the same. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go for the shield as well. Because of the embellishment of Chris Evans' mum's grandfather clock. But that's a classic Buffalo Bluff trick. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> Just to fuck with your mind more. <laughs> yeah, which is why it's a bluff, possibly. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, you're right. It oh. is the uh, the shield. <laughs> it, it was not a grandfather clock. It was just um, the sound of a, a bell from a bell tower from a sound effects library. Um, but the others are true. Um, Peter Jackson went to uh, a one-day international between New Zealand and England, where uh, New Zealand won after bowling England out for a pitiful 89 in the second innings. Uh, but before that, got 25,000 fans to be Urukai. And uh, I read this fact about um, Buster, the Jack Russell Terrier, and Jurassic Park, and I went and found the scene. And yeah, there is it's a fairly short little uh, clip, but there is a bit of a... Where he's uh, the, the T Rex is, is shaking the uh, the Gallimimus around, and it, yeah, I can I can hear it being a dog, and that it's weird, and I'm never going to not hear it again. It spoiled Jurassic Park for me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, should we should we do answer smash? Yes. Okay. Yes. Right. Let's. Don't explain it. That'll help John. <laughs> It'll serve him right. <laughs> I'll, I'll explain it for the benefit of our listeners. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> so now we're going to have a round of Answer Smash. So after Andy's great idea last episode to do a quiz based on Answer Smash from the House of Games quiz show, 
I thought I'd do another round of that as it was incredibly fun and John and Ian haven't got to play it yet. It's a pretty simple format. I'm going to give you two clues. The first one is always going to be the name of an act. John? <laughs> I was just being silly in a visual manner, which really helps the, <laughs> the podcast flow, I find. <sighs> Anyway, that's not wearing any pants. <laughs> I'm going to give you two clues. <laughs> the first one is always the name of an actor or a director. The second... Oh, oh, the se- oh, so I, I've just found hypocrites on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that organised religion, eh? Oh, really gets you off. <laughs> just, just think how old that woman is now, John. <laughs> Still would. (laughs) (laughs) We've got a spade. (laughs) As I was saying, the first clue is always going to be the name of an actor or a director. The second clue is always going to be the name of a film. All you have to do is smash the answers together. So, for example, last time (laughs) we had Judy Dench Schindler's List. We also had Samuel L. Jack's Son of the Mask. You've got to smash them together, otherwise I will not accept it. Buzz in as soon as you know the answer. If I think you're trying to work it out after you've buzzed, I will have to time you out. And I'm going to add another level uh, of competitiveness here because in actual answer smash, Richard Osman takes a point away if you answer incorrectly. Mm. Okay. I know you're going to be as picky as we were last time. I wasn't picky. People were just getting them wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to accept the right answer. Okay. Well, that yeah. sounds very unfair. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Are we all ready to go? Yep. Yeah. Yes. Yep. No, number one. The actor who played Jesse James and Tyler Durden and the 2012 American comedy musical starring Anna Kendrick and Rebel Wilson, which Buzz. also... Buzz. That was Peter, yes. Brad Pitch Perfect. Point for Peter. Correct. Brad Pitch Perfect. Number two, the director of Evil Dead and 2002's Spider-Man and a mega film franchise currently filming its seventh and... Buzz. John? Buzz. Sam Raimi-tion Impossible. Correct. Sam Raimi-tion Impossible. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Ian, I think you're a bit of a disadvantage here because your uh, broadband is letting you down and you're on a delay, so... (laughs) Awesome. Sucks to be you. (laughs) (laughs) Number three. The actor who tortured Ben Stiller in Meet the Parents and asked who was looking at him because there was no one else in the room. And a 2000 crime comedy drama film. (sighs) Peter? Robert De Niro Ronin. Incorrect. Going to have to take your point off. Listen to the whole clue. 2000 crime comedy drama film featuring a lot of folk music written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen and starring George Clooney. Buzz. John. Robert De Niro, brother, where art Correct. <laughs> <laughs> so, so far it's two points to John and that's the end of the scoring. <laughs> <laughs> I said it was easier when he wasn't here. <laughs> Number four. The actress who played Furiosa a monster, and an old guard. And a James Bond film featuring George Lazenby's one and only appearance as double... Andy. Uh, Charlize Theron, Her Majesty's Secret Service. (laughs) Correct. 
I buzzed so far ahead of everyone. I am furious. Oh, furiosa. <laughs> Sorry, Ian. I'm going to turn my camera off, see if that helps. Number five. The actress known for her work with the United Nations and has an estranged relationship with her father, John Voigt. And the 1969 film, written by and starring Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper, where real Buzz, drugs... Buzz, Peter. Angela Jalisi Ryder. Correct. <laughs> oh, that's a push. <laughs> <laughs> Angelina Jolisi Ryder. It all makes sense. <laughs> okay, so we have Andy one, Peter one, and John on two. I'm really sorry, Ian. Nah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Just a stupid game anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Number six. The actor and director who has appeared in The Predator and directed Lethal Weapon. And the 2021 film that should have come out five years earlier, Scarlet. Shane Black Widow. Correct. All right, Peter, you're neck and neck with John now. Good. I knew I had to catch up. <laughs> I didn't Peter lose a point, though, so he did. shouldn't he have been on minus one? He should be on three, uh, but I've, he's now on two. Next one. The iconic actor who rose to fame in the silent era and seemingly never hurt himself when he fell down. And the 1993 film starring Clint Eastwood as a Secret Service agent and John Malkovich. Buzz. John. Buster Keaton. Incorrect. Charlie Chaplin, The Line of Fire. Correct. Yeah, as I was saying Buster's name, I realised I'd fucked up terribly there. (laughs) That's because you hadn't actually worked it out before you buzzed as well. (laughs) Yeah, I was almost going to have to time you out as well, uh, because I could see you working it out. You could see me realising I'd gone horribly wrong. (laughs) So John loses the points and Peter gains one. So uh, Peter's now in the lead with three. Uh, Andy's on one, John's on one. I'm really sorry, Ian. Yeah, it's okay. (laughs) Buzz, Charlie Chaplin, The Line of Fire. (laughs) (laughs) Next one. The new joint owner of Wrexham AFC and 2003 film starring Luke Wilson, Vince Vaughn, Andy. Uh, Ian, have you buzzed? I have not, but thank you, Andy. Thank you, (laughs) mate. It's Ryan Reynolds School. (laughs) Ryan Reynolds School, correct. (laughs) Cheers, Andy. Appreciate it. Okay, I've got two left. So there is chances for three people to win. <laughs> Number nine, star of the Hunger Games series of films and 1962 British epic historic Andy. Buzz. Jennifer Lawrence of Arabia. Correct. <laughs> Andy is now on three. Peter is on three. John is on one. I'm really sorry, Ian. <laughs> That's the episode title. <laughs> Just apologise every round. <laughs> This one, I think, is really, really tough. So I'm actually going to give two points for this one. But I'm also going to take two points away if you don't get it. Right. Hong Kong actor, director and martial artist known for his uh, acrobatic fighting style and comic timing. And the 2008 film starring Angelina Jolie as a woman united with a boy who she realized is not her missing son. Buzz. Buzz. John. Maybe Ian. Ian. Go in. Jackie Changeling? Correct. Hang <laughs> <laughs> on, I've lost to a man whose internet doesn't work. <laughs> so at the end of that round, we have Andy and Peter tied on three. We have Ian on two and John coming last uh, with one point. Now, you'd think I'd be prepared and come up with a tiebreak question. 
and I haven't. Um, <laughs> so. we, can, we can share the glory, that's fine. No. <laughs> Apparently not. I think the real winner is friendship and <laughs> crucially not John. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that is all for today's episode of Nerdfest. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in a few weeks' time. Until then, do connect with us on social media and follow our news and takes on the week's movie news. Uh, We're at Nerdfest UK on Twitter and Facebook. And if you can, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to our podcast. And today's prize for anyone who does that is an absolute cracker. So what is it today, John? If you like or share or post about us, then I will come round for a threesome with you and 135-year-old nudie star of the hypocrite, Margaret Edwards. (laughs) Until next time, you've been listening to... Uh, A man that thinks it's time for Godzilla's roar to be retired and replaced by the sound of a happy kitten meowing. (laughs) Buzz, Brad Pitch Perfect! Brad Pitch Perfect! <laughs> a man who is going to keep the name he first thought of. A man who might listen to the podcast occasionally. Uh, and I'm Hazel Chand Leprechaun 4 in the hood. <laughs> if you haven't seen the Leprechaun movies, uh, good, excellent, stay that way. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye bye. 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 Leprechaun 5 is surprising. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Buzz, Charlie Chaplin, The Line of Fire. <laughs>